We are, uh, we're starting a new series this week, and um, we are going to look at uh, teachings of Jesus directly from Jesus um, uh, across the Gospels. We'll, we'll take some, some selected teachings from across the Gospels, and the reason for this right now, for the timing of it, of course, it's never a bad idea to learn from Jesus, but... Uh, the particular timing of it is that we've just spent over a year in the book of Genesis and always looking forward, looking forward to Jesus and seeing these um, allusions, I don't say that with an I, but with an A, allusions, the Genesis alluding to and looking forward to and speaking about Jesus. We've been looking forward for so long, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to go right to him now and kind of sit at his feet for a season and learn right from him. And so that's why we're doing this series now, Word of Life. Uh, Jesus has the words of life, and we want to learn from him as his disciples. Uh, Jesus says that if, uh, if you are truly his disciple, if you love him, then you will listen to him, you will obey him. This love for God and obedience to the commands, the teachings of God are, are always linked throughout the New Testament, um, and particularly when it comes to discipleship under Christ, he did a lot of teaching in a, in a three-year span of time in his public ministry, and by the grace of his Holy Spirit inspiring and preserving his teaching for us, we can learn uh, from him as our teacher. So we want to begin to do that uh, during this season. And, and the reason I'm, I'm explaining that to you is because, of course, it would be assumed that if we're reading the words of Jesus and we're at church and somebody's up here doing this and you're sitting there doing that, then, of course, we're learning from Jesus, right? But how easy is it for someone to stand here doing this and people sitting there doing that and we don't realize we're actually learning from Jesus. Not from a person about Jesus, but learning from him. These are actually his words, his ideas, his desires, his teaching. In, uh, in, in the scriptures, in the ancient world, particularly in, in ancient Jewish world, whenever they speak of a yoke, you remember that Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. It's easy, it's light. He was speaking about uh, the difference between his teaching or his yoke, that wooden bar that went across two animals and joined them together so that they could pull something together, plow together. That yoke of Jesus is not a burden that will weigh you down and destroy you like the yoke of the Pharisees, their legalism, their self-righteousness, their condemnation. Instead, Jesus says, take my teaching upon you. It gives life. It gives spiritual energy. It gives joy. There's peace in obedience to Christ and being his disciples. So we wanna learn directly from him and uh, in order to do that, we are going to start kind of uh, at the greatest point, but you could even say, you could argue it's kind of the pinnacle of the teaching of Christ, 
We're gonna start there. Uh, not that anything Jesus ever said was unimportant, but there are some things Jesus said which are like monuments, markers in his teaching that you can come back to and there can be no doubt, no question of who Jesus is and what it was he was calling his disciples to. And so in order to kind of start at the top and establish who Jesus is as our discipler, as our teacher, we're going to begin in John chapter eight. So if you would please uh, get your Bibles to John chapter eight. If you don't have one with you, it'll be here up on the screen, Uh, but it's, I think, a good practice to go there yourself if you can. John chapter eight, and now we're going to start um, by reading just a couple of verses here uh, from Jesus and we're gonna pray for the Lord's help and then we'll come back and read the kind of broader context. So this is John chapter eight, starting in verse 58, reading 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, that is the Jews and particularly the Pharisees gathered around questioning him, truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. God, we do declare that we are gathered here in Jesus' name in his name, in light of who he is, according to his character, according to his teaching, his identity as God the Son, our Lord, our Savior. We're gathered here according to Jesus. And we ask you, By your spirit, will you teach us? Will you teach us what Jesus meant when he said these things? Holy Spirit, please move in this place on our souls. Please open our hearts, our minds to not only hear, but to hear and hear. That we wouldn't be like those who hearing don't hear and seeing don't see, but Lord, help us to hear and to see Jesus this morning. To truly be his disciples, trusting in him, following him, obeying him. Help us, please, by your spirit and for your own glory, for your name's sake, would you accomplish what only you can do in us, your servants, this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jesus says, truly, truly, or maybe some of your Bibles say, verily, Or maybe some of them say, certainly. 
I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, we're going to read the kind of wider context in order to understand why is it that when Jesus said this, they wanted to kill him. That'd be nice to know, right? So let's go back to verse 31. Let's start there and let's uh, go, let's listen, let's kind of sit to the side and listen to this conversation between Jesus and the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, uh, the kind of predominant religious teachers of the day among the Jews who uh, the Jewish people believed were from God and who had the truth of God and they felt responsible to these teachers as uh, their disciples, they felt responsible to follow their teaching, believing that it was from God. But as you may know, Jesus and these teachers, these Pharisees had a pretty frequent friction because Jesus' teaching didn't match up, didn't line up with the teaching of the Pharisees. They tended to be very legalistic, very self-righteous, very self-serving, and here Jesus is coming, making radical claims about himself, calling people to follow him and follow his teaching, and calling people to rebel against the teaching of the Pharisees because it was not of God. And this kind of comes to a head here, starting in verse 31. Let's read. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now the Jews who had believed him, he said this to them, those people who had become his disciples. We don't know if they remained his disciples, but up to this point they were believing what he had taught. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, they answered him. They is not people who are coming to Jesus in belief, but those who are gathered around skeptically. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, most certainly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Can you feel the room heating up? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, the the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. 
Abraham didn't work, so now they're ramping things up. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That wasn't okay. You understand? They had set themselves up as being the teachers of Israel. The the kind of spiritual fathers of the people of God sent by God to teach the people God's own words. And now Jesus is saying, no, God's not your father. He's not even your God. You're not of him. Your father is the devil. And you seek to do the devil's desires, his work for him in the world. He's a murderer and a liar. And that's why you don't love me because I'm life and I'm truth. And you hate life. And you hate truth. He calls them Satan worshipers. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Now you understand, he just, Jesus just said, God Almighty seeks to honor me and you seek to dishonor me. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Word of life. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham knew Jesus? He knew about him? You can understand why the next question follows. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? They thought this was a question of age. 
Oh, you, th- you are such an old teacher that you taught Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, in order to understand why they picked up the stones, of course, you can kind of follow the course of the conversation. Jesus said some really alarming things. He made some accusations against them, which were true. He wasn't speaking in an inflammatory, angry way. He was just speaking truthfully about them, but they couldn't bear the truth. They couldn't stand it. They couldn't tolerate the truth because they're of their father, the devil, the father of lies. But it wasn't just that Jesus was so contradictory. It wasn't just that Jesus had offended them so much that they were picking up stones to kill him. And in order to understand really, truly, in a deep way, why it is they picked up those stones to kill him, you need to know just a little bit of Greek. Okay, so I know I don't go nerd on you very often, but as Trey Clausen pointed out, I wore my nerd sweater this morning so I could do a little Greek with you. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, the English translation of that doesn't really pick up the weight of what he said, all right? Now, in Greek, there are two ways that you can say I am, kind of a self-designation. Before you describe who you are or what you are, you say I am, fill in the blank. In Greek, there are two different ways to say this. There's the word ego, which is where we get ego, which is kind of your personality or your personhood, who you are, ego. In the Greek, it says ego, and the other way you could say it is emi. Ego and emi, both mean I am, and they're ways of, of designating yourself in some way, describing who you are, describing your identity in some way. Now, the interesting thing about what Jesus did here, of course, this was written by John, his disciple, in Greek, the kind of academic uh, worldwide language of the day that was written. But Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, a kind of a dialect of Hebrew. John translates it here in the Greek, and he says that Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego imi. Ego imi. Not just before Abraham was, ego or before Abraham was, emi, but before Abraham was, ego, emi. In other words, if you were to be reading an actual Greek New Testament, you would see Jesus, as you translate it into English in your mind, say, before Abraham was, I am, I am. Was he stuttering? No, he's trying to make a point here. He's making a very distinct point. And you notice that he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. That would just mean he's really old, right? Before Abraham was, I was. No, before Abraham was, ego, emi. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? 
What was it about before Abraham was, I am, I am, that made them want to kill him? Jesus has, um, throughout the book of John, made several statements that start with I am. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. He made several I am statements, but, and they had heard this before, this ego e me, the vine, ego e me, the good shepherd, but he was speaking kind of in parables and they were willing to tolerate the language until he said, before Abraham was, ego imi. Why did they want to kill him? In order to understand why they wanted to kill him when he said that, we need to go back to Exodus chapter three. So I'm gonna ask you to turn there because we will be there for a little bit. Exodus chapter three. I don't hear enough pages turning. Let's do this. Exodus chapter three. Now Moses, if you remember, Moses was a Hebrew who grew up in Pharaoh's house as a prince, the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh, and then having murdered an Egyptian, who was beating a Hebrew slave, he fled out of fear to a place called Midian outside of Egypt where he got married and he became a shepherd and he was living and hiding out in the wilderness. And then Exodus chapter three happens. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God, rightly so. Now at this point, every time the Hebrew Old Testament, the original language is using this word God, this designation for him, it's Elohim, which is not a personal name, it just means God, God, Elohim. I am Elohim of your father, Elohim of Abraham, Elohim of Isaac, Elohim of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at Elohim. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. You notice the contradiction there. In God's mind, there is no fear where he is with you. But I will be with you. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You'll know that I'm with you because I'll bring you back to this very place. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's a good question, right? It's a logical question. Who is this God? Because there were many gods, many fabrications in the minds of human beings about who God was. So who exactly should I say has sent me? If they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, in the Greek Old Testament, the translation called the Septuagint, in in ancient times when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, the translation comes out, ego, imi, I am, I am. That's not his name. Moses asked for his name, but instead of giving him his name right out of the gate, he instead begins by saying, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. He still hasn't given his name. I am. Not I was, not I will be. I am. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This name that he reveals, which in our English Bibles is the Lord in all caps. Anytime you see the Lord in all caps, it's actually standing in place of God's personal name that he gave himself, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh is God's name. Now, Yahweh has meaning. It's connected to the verb you find in verse 14, the to be verb, to be. Now you may look at verse 14, you may say, I don't see anywhere where it says to be. 
Let's look at verse 14 again. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I don't see to be anywhere in verse 14. That's because it's caught up in the Hebrew. I am who I am. It's about being, being, perpetual being. Not past being, not future being, but always being. It's infinite. I am. This is a a statement that God is making to Moses. He's saying something about himself. Ego imi. I am. I am. I am always being. The fact that God is, is the reality from which all other reality flows. You understand what I'm saying? God is. He is. If you can just get kind of philosophical with me for a moment and hear me say, not not an incomplete sentence, you're waiting for me to describe God is what? No. God is is. He is reality. He is existing. He is. He's saying this to Moses. I am. You are what, God? No, no, no. I am. I am. The fact that God is is the reality from which all other reality flows. Nothing that exists, exists apart from Yahweh. Yahweh. God's personal designation for himself. He is the God who is. There is no other God who is. All other gods are fabrication. They're all imagination. They're all handcrafted. But God is. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, who? God. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, Yahweh. Just a a little bit of a side note to help us worship this morning as we realize the intensity of the truth of what God in Christ has revealed about himself to us. When we sing hallelujah, this Hebrew word, when we exclaim this towards God, yah. It's just a shortening of Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise. Hallelujah. Praise. Praise whom? Praise Yahweh. Praise the one who is. Praise the one who's real. The God who is. Not fabrication. Not imagination. Praise the God who through himself defines all that is. In him, all things find their being. 
Nothing was made without him. Nothing exists apart from him. He is. Nothing else can claim that. Everything else finds its origin in him. If I can just attempt to paraphrase God here in order to explain what he's telling Moses is, tell them the eternal creator, the one true God, the one who is real has sent you. Not some handcrafted imaginary God, not some figment of the nation's imaginations. The God who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. The one who is, I am, has sent you. Let me ask you, who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? There is none beside him. There is none before him. None can outlive him because he is always, always he is. Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah led by the Lord is writing these things carried by the spirit and the Lord wants to speak some things about himself here to Israel who's doubting, whose faith is failing, who's stumbling in their adherence to the commands and their faithfulness to God. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 9 says this, please just marinate in these things with me as we ponder the God who is. Go up on high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighted the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what can man, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him Understand, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. 
Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that won't rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. We can't even number them. He knows them all by name. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Yahweh is the everlasting God, the God who is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who is like Yahweh? There is none beside him because Yahweh is the God who actually is. There is none other. All things find their origin in him before anything else was. God is. He wasn't in a place that was empty. There was no place. It was only Him, he always is. He is 
eternal God. There's a teacher many of you, most of you have heard of for good reason, John Piper, and he has a list of 10 realities in light of the reality of God. Number one, because God is, God never had a beginning. Because God is, God will never end. Because God is, God is absolute reality. Everything else finds its definition, its source, its origin in him. He has no origin. You understand? He is absolute reality. Because God is, he is utterly independent. He needs no one. He needs nothing. He's not looking to use a resource. He is the source. Because God is, everything that is not God depends totally on God. That's true whether you like it or not. Number six, all the universe is by comparison to God as Nothing, all the nations are as nothing before him. Now, the nations, the universe, God's creation is something, but in comparison to God, it's like it's nothing. I want you to look down at the carpet, if you would. I'm not just tricking you into bowing your head, I'm really saying, look at the carpet. Look at the carpet, and now, if you would, with me, try to notice one of those little white specks. You see those? The pattern of them? Try to pick one out and focus on it. That little white speck that you're noticing right now, have you ever noticed it before? I don't mean the specks, but that one. Have you ever noticed that one speck before? No. But hasn't it been there every time you stepped into this room? It's always been there. Do you know what that little speck is like? It's like all other things that exist compared to God. They're there, but compared to God, they're like nothing. They're like nothing. He could, he could step past his creation without noticing it. He can hold it in his hand without feeling the weight of it. He is so much grander and more majestic and real than anything else that is. It's all as nothing compared to him. Number seven, God is constant. He is constant in his attributes, in who he is. God is, and he always is who he is. Piper says it like this, he cannot be improved. There's no progress with God. 
He's not becoming something great. He's not something really excellent that one day will be something even more excellent. He just always is who he is. The definition of excellence. Anything that is excellent is only a shadow of his excellence. Which leads to number eight. God is the absolute standard for what is right, true, and beautiful. If you think anything's beautiful, like I think my wife is beautiful. But compared to God, she's only a shadowy picture of what is the source and the definition of all beauty. God is the standard of what is right, true, and beautiful. When Jesus said they can't bear the truth, that when he speaks the truth, they can't bear it, it's because they are not in and of themselves true. But Jesus is. When he speaks, it is true. Not because God decides to say true things, but because whatever God says is true. Because what emanates from him is truth. Because he is truth. Number nine, God does whatever he pleases. He is utterly free from all constraint. There is nothing that can keep God from doing what God wants to do. Why? Because God is. And everything else that is, is finding its source in him, dependent on him, needy for him. But God, God is independent. God needs nothing. And he does whatever he pleases. And finally, God is the most important and most valuable reality and the most valuable person that is because he is. The fact of God's reality makes him the most valuable and important reality that exists. Now, if you stop there and you don't know this God, if he's only Elohim and he's not Yahweh as we know him, this could be a terrifying list of truths. Because whether God was good and benevolent or whether he was this capricious, evil, selfish God like the creations of the Romans and Greek minds, It'd be a terrifying reality that he is completely free from all restraint, that he has all power and authority to wield his will and his creation as he deems proper in any moment. But because he is the God who actually is, this isn't a terrifying list of truths. It's a hopeful, comforting, life-giving list of truths. The God who is, who we know to be, he really is. 
They said to Jesus, You are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Ego, Imi, I am, I am. Jesus tells them, Before Abraham was, I am the God who had no beginning. I am the God who will never end. I am the God who is absolute reality. I am the God who is utterly independent. Before Abraham was, I am the God from whom everything else depends on. Before Abraham was, I am the God with whom you compare everything and find it to be as nothing. Before Abraham was, I am the God who is constant, who is holy and perfect in my righteousness and character and nature. I cannot be improved upon. I am not growing. I am Before Abraham was, I am the God who is the absolute standard of what is right and true and beautiful. Before Abraham was, I am the God who does whatever he pleases. Sovereign God. Before Abraham was, I am the most important and most valuable reality and person that is. Now, now do you wonder why they picked up stones to kill him? Because he just said, I am the ultimate defining reality in all that exists because I made it by the word of my power. All that exists, including yourselves, is in existence as an act of my gracious will. I am the image of the invisible God. All things were created by me and through me and for me. In me, all things exist, and in me, all things hold together. Jesus stands in the dust of Israel, proclaiming to the Jews, I made this dust. And by my own will, by an act of my own volition, the the dust does not disintegrate molecularly. I hold it together. The tongue you use to wag at me and disgrace and dishonor me, to speak lies about me, I made that tongue. I designed it. I am. I am. This is Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, preeminent over all that exists, the highest in the household of the universe. Now, 
It's no wonder they picked up stones to kill him because they could not accept that this Jesus is Yahweh who spoke to Moses, who had spoken to Abraham, that Abraham was looking forward, hearing the promises of God, God having preached the gospel to him, that he was looking forward to the day of Christ and rejoicing. Jesus spoke through this burning bush. Jesus spoke through the prophets. And now Jesus is here speaking from his own mouth. But we know who Jesus is. We know. He's telling us. And we know who he is. Now, when you think of this everlasting God, this transcendent, perfect, beautiful, true, eternal creator God through whom everything else finds its origin and existence. The God who is utterly independent from all things, who has no need of anything in his creation, who is righteous in his judgments, that this everlasting God who is would enter into his broken creation and die a criminal's death on a Roman cross in the place of sinners who have rebelled against his sovereign, benevolent, gracious rule, owing nothing to us but giving his entire self to us. We are as nothing to him. And yet he became nothing for us. Being found in appearance as a man and humbling himself as a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, he emptied himself for the sake of sick, selfish, sadistic, idol-worshiping sinners. Praise be to Yahweh. Praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise be to Yahweh of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior. How undeserving are we. How gracious is he. We were as nothing. We were counted as less than nothing. Listen, worse than nothing. Imagine nothing rebelling against the thing that it would find its existence in. Less than nothing. Worse than nothing. And he died for us. How can this be? No wonder this is foolishness to the world. 
If we really counted, counted up the things that we were saying, measured them, the things that we're proclaiming about this God, this Jesus who says he is the one who is, and he came and died a sinner's death in our place, no wonder the world says, too good to be true. Too much. You've gone too far. But he is the God who is. Whether we know it, whether we acknowledge it, whether we submit to it, whether we believe it or not, he is the God who is. And his gospel is the gospel that is true. Whether we believe it, accept it, like it, love it, embrace it, enjoy it or not, this is the gospel of the God who is. That he would do this for us. It boggles the natural mind, but it fills and enlivens and lifts the spirit for the one who believes it. It's a truth to be savored, to be lived in, that all of life would be arranged around the God who is because nothing else makes any sense. Nothing else is appropriate. Nothing else is fitting. He is. And so we are wholly devoted in belief toward him. Let's turn to him in prayer and praise him in our hearts and with our mouths.